A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner was first published in 1930 and was Faulkner's first short story to be published in a national magazine. As a pioneer of Southern Gothic literature, Faulkner perfectly embodied the disturbing, decaying, and grotesque that stem from alienation, all trademarks of Southern Gothic. Today, we will discuss Faulkner's nonlinear format, his inspiration for the story, and how these relate to Southern Gothic literature. This is analytical. Hell yeah, it is. Hello. Hello, hello. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. That we are. I took out the new. Yeah, we're, we're established. <laughs> Third episode, baby. <laughs> <laughs> to start, I just want to address the writing of the story. It's amazing. It is beautiful. William Faulkner did an amazing job. He does use very beautiful language, just his descriptions of things. I just remember seeing the one word that stuck out to me was macabre. Whenever he, like, at the end is describing her, like, body, it's just beautiful language. I mean, I just, every... In every paragraph, he has such beautiful descriptions of things. He really does. A line that really stuck out to me was the start of the second section of the story, where he says, So she vanquished them, horse and foot, just as she had vanquished their fathers 30 years before about the smell. I think that's just amazing. It's just, it's a perfect turn in the story to go from one story to the next. And that kind of gets us into the linear, or rather, non-linear storytelling in this story. It skips all over the place, and... Voltas like this, or Volta's more poem term. What's it called where you switch from one to the other? Like, Mrs. Butts would have us write sentences that, like, had to go from one to the other. Transition? Yes! <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so this transition just really spells out how the rest of the story is, because it's just embodies Faulkner's writing, I believe. Yes, Faulkner definitely wrote a lot of non-linear Stories? No, no. We don't know what Faulkner wrote. Yes, we do. Did he write nonlinear? He wrote a lot of stream of consciousness. A lot of his short stories and even novels do stream of consciousness or nonlinear. He really just tried to push the boundaries of what writing could be. He didn't want to tell a story of once upon a time, happily ever after. He wanted to tell a story as you kind of tell a story to a friend almost. It's really hard for me to just pick out one sentence that stands out above them all because in each and every single paragraph, there is just a beautiful description. Even his like one-liners, like you mentioned, the start of the second section, just that one sentence is beautiful. Yeah, it's no wonder that famous writer was famous. <laughs> no, for sure. And it's no wonder that he still gets studied and spoken about today. If nothing else, just for his writing, like you just take excerpts out of anything he wrote and be like, yes, this, do this, guys. And I kind of think actually that the way he writes with the beautiful descriptions and the very descriptive words he uses, I think it kind of makes you forget that you're even listening to a story at first. Like you're just entranced by his words. I can see that. Like you said, it feels like someone's telling you this story. And I think that's really what it does feel like. As if I was a guy in the 1900s. 1930s, yes. As if I were a guy in the 1930s getting told this story by my grandfather, someone who lived through this. Which brings about an interesting point, as William Faulkner based this story on two events that happened in his own town. One story was about a local woman who refused to release her dead son's body to the undertaker, and the other involved a romance between a southern belle and a northerner who came south to pave streets. So, in this story, William Faulkner combined Mrs. Emily into these two stories that he experienced. 
And I think that's interesting because it kind of really, it gives a lot of background and it makes the story personal to Faulkner, which is very interesting. Faulkner himself disowned symbolic readings and described the story as a tragedy and nothing more. While nearly all critics that read the story always take away the point or the theme of a degrading South, the crumbling of the old Republic and the ushering in of the new. That's actually what the kind of the trademarks of Southern Gothic writing is, is the decaying and just kind of grotesque nature of the old South and how the new age is coming about. And it even talks a lot in the story about the younger generation. He even talks about the board of aldermen and says the graybeards and a younger generation man. So even if Faulkner didn't like to see it symbolically, he did use a lot of old and new kind of against each other to end the story. Basically, for a guy that didn't want to see it as symbolic, he wrote a lot of symbolics in this story, which is interesting. <laughs> I don't know why he would be so against symbolics in his story, or is that a correct word to say? Symbols in his, in his story. I don't know why he would be so against the readings of the symbols in the story if he, like, he put them in there. Why would he be so against that? But whatever floats his boat, he's dead now, doesn't really matter. And it is possible that he wrote it just to be a story, and that since he is so descriptive, we can pull a lot of symbols and, you know, similes and metaphors and just all these literature devices out of it and put more to it than maybe he originally intended. I think you might be right. And that's a lot of literature, I think, is just reading into stories that people didn't really intend to. The bad part about that is Faulkner spoke out against those readings, where I think that's not very constructive to your own reading to say, no, don't do that. I did not mean that. Yeah, to go a little bit with that again, I do think Faulkner was just trying to tell us a story. And like you said, it was a tragedy of what happened to Miss Emily. That she lost her father after her father would never let her marry, so she wasn't really a woman of standing in this town besides her name. And that was kind of losing its worth as well. For sure, and it was losing its worth because of some of her actions, as well as the actions of her elders. And to tie that back in... It talks a lot about Colonel Sartoris and how he kind of gave Emily a pass on her taxes and that the newer age wasn't okay with it. So this again shows the juxtaposition of the old and the new and how they're kind of coming at odds with each other. That's a really interesting point because I think that exact example is showing the good of the old and the bad of the new. Where most of the rest of the story shows the opposite. The old is bad and the new is good. I think the older members of the community are going to let Emily get away with what she does, while as the new isn't. Well, in some senses, because it was the old members of the community that judged her for dating a northerner. I actually am going to disagree with you there. It was both. It was a lot of the newer or younger women who said, oh, this isn't okay. But the older women wanted to actually do something about it. So I think they're still very similar, the old and the new. It's just that the old is going to do something about it, and the new are going to be, you know, talking behind her back. Well, I don't know which one's better or worse. I would argue the old is worse because they try to step in and take a part of someone's life that wasn't their own, where the new just kind of gossiped about it, which, small town, it's to be expected. But that is a good point, and I wonder if there's something more to that. As it is literature, I think there's always something more to that, and we probably could look back into the history of the 1930s and see how the old and new came together, especially in the Deep South, where a lot of Faulkner's writing took place. 
This story specifically took place in Jefferson, Mississippi, which is a fictional town created by Faulkner that a lot of his stories take place in is Jefferson. And I think he kind of based it on his own hometown and towns that he had been in in the South. Well, the two events that Faulkner based it on happened in his own hometown in Mississippi. So you're absolutely right. I usually am. <laughs> so I think we should get into a little bit of the like meat and potatoes of the story and talk about those two events a little bit deeper. So you mentioned that the first one was a local woman who didn't want to give up her son's dead body to the undertaker. So in this case, Faulkner took that and kind of turned it on its head where a daughter didn't want to give up her father's body. So my question to you is why? You know, that is a very good question. I have no idea what her motive was because it's really unclear. Her father abused her and wouldn't let her do anything and held her to such a high standard. She had to be representative of the Southern nobility and this constricted her. I'm going to ask you to back up your point here. Where does it say that she's abused? Because I didn't really read into that, that she was abused, just kind of suppressed or oppressed. Well, I guess I read the impression and suppression as abuse, which I would argue it was, but it's fine if you didn't read it like that. An event I see is that when her father died, it got about the house was all that was left to her, which is kind of a jerk move on her father's part. Or was that all her father had left because he didn't have any other children that we are told about? And the other kin in Alabama that they refer to later on, it doesn't seem like they, he would have given them any money either. So maybe that just shows the decaying nature of their state or of their, you know, livelihood. You might be right, but right after that it says that people pitied her for this or could finally feel vindicated because of this, which I don't think they would if her father had just gone broke. I think they would, you know, actually I do think they would pity her if her father had gone broke. I really don't know. I, uh, I just kind of read it as abuse on the first read. You might be right, though. No, that's fair, and that's something that people probably have dug into and, you know, looked a little bit deeper in, that maybe she had been abused by her father. I just didn't see that at first, and so I kind of wanted to see your thinking of it. Well, digging deeper into it, I could say that there's a picture of them where Emily, Miss Emily is a slender figure in white in the background, her father a sprattled silhouette in the foreground, his back to her and clutching a horse whip, which that has a lot of symbolism of abuse in it. But other than that, there isn't a whole lot explicitly stated in the story of abuse. But I would say there's enough there for me to say that's definitely abuse. No, that part just, I guess, didn't stick out to me as much with the picture, but no, that's a good point. Well, I definitely think that in a short story, including that little detail, which even though Faulkner said he didn't like the symbolic readings of his stories, I think it's definitely a symbol we should be looking at, and I did look at. I still don't think that necessarily answers why she kept his body, unless she was just holding on to like the last remnant of her life since he did not allow her to get married, and she just had to have some man still there because in the 1930s, women didn't really have their own you know, livelihoods where they could be their own person or own land. So maybe she was worried about that. Talking through it, I really think it was just loneliness. She was scared of being alone, left in the house with her house taker and no one else. I'd be more scared of being left alone with a dead body in the house. Well, we can see from the story that Miss Emily has no such aversion to that. <laughs> yes, which brings us to our next point. Good segue. So as John pointed out before, Faulkner had took inspiration from a romance between a Southern Belle and a Northerner. In this case, the Southern Belle is Miss Emily and the Northerner is Homer. Homer Barron is the foreman of a bricklaying crew that came into town to repave the roads, which Miss Emily seems to court for a time. And people in the town talk bad about this and aren't really about her being with a Northerner. That, that's a taboo of the time. 
Yes, she's supposed to retain her nobility and stay above the people and really date another southern gentleman that is probably of the same class as her, which is interesting because she's like a poor rich person, I guess. Yeah, she only has the house. She has no other money to her, but she's still not supposed to be with a northerner who is just a day worker. It's something they refer to him as, a day worker. And by all accounts, he's a really good gentleman. Faulkner says there's always a crowd of laughter around him. He might be gay. Yes, he might be gay. That's another point. <laughs> Everyone to... knows the gays are the best. <laughs> I love that. And to back that up, because Homer himself had remarked, he liked men, and it was known that he drank with the younger men in the Elks Club, that he was not a marrying man. And that little section is within hyphens, and it just says that he remarked he's not the marrying type. But I think Faulkner was so direct and so intentional with his language, he would not have written, he remarked he liked men. Unless he meant to say, this man might be gay. No, I think that's definitely correct. There's no clear way to say a man is gay other than saying he liked men. There really isn't. Faulkner could not have been more clear in this statement. And I think it's really interesting for the story having been published in the 1930s that Faulkner was so direct. This man likes men. That's just not something I think they would do in the 1930s. History will say they were just really good friends. Yes, it's kind of a point that just glanced over. So I really think that it's not really widely accepted that he liked men. It's just kind of like, yeah, he's a guy. He likes hanging out with the bros and having a good time, which is fine. And it's fair. It's definitely something I didn't see the first time I read it back in high school. I didn't think, oh, this man is gay. It's something I saw this time when I was rereading it. I was like, that seems too direct not to be that. Just a little sus, you know. <laughs> which can kind of tie into it further of why did... Miss Emily poisoned him. Because that's what we're kind of led to believe. She went and bought arsenic, which was written for rats on there, which is another interesting point that was well, very deliberate. Well, I'll stop you right there. The four rats thing I find hilarious because she goes to the drugstore and just like, I want poison. And the guy's like, all right, what you need? Like, what you want? Like, that is the best drugstore you could ever go to. You just walk in like, I want poison. Oh, here you go. Here's the poison. He starts listing off poisons. And she's like, oh, that sounds like a good one. Arsenic? Yeah, I'll take that. He's like, okay, uh, the law requires I ask you what you need it for. And she just looks at him. She just gives him a stare and walks out. That's it. That's where it ends. And the guy's like, okay, and gives it to her. He gives it to her. I think this again goes back to the old versus the new. So that pharmacist was an older generation man. And he knew that Emily Grierson, she was to be revered. That she was a Grierson. That she had to have what she needed because of her name. Sure, but you don't give a senile old lady poison. Was she senile then? I think she was a bit younger then. I think she would have been like 50s, 60s. I don't know if she was senile. Any lady that comes in asking for poison and then just picks one that you list is senile. <laughs> I, you can't tell me otherwise. It definitely is so funny that under the skulls and cross, uh, the skull and bones that was on the package, he just wrote for rats. I guess not a snitch at least. <laughs> And the thing is, later on, the townsmen had to investigate a smell. And they were like, oh, it's probably a possum. And they didn't go ask the pharmacist, hey, you know, this lady came in buying poison. No, this never was, the dots were never connected until the end. It was definitely a more trusting time, I guess. And when you say later on, you mean later on in the timeline. Because the story actually tells these two events flip-flopped. No, that's true. Especially because it is a non-linear format and it's told with like almost flashbacks and... You know, side roads. That's why I said it sounds like it's someone telling you a story where they start off and they're like, oh, wait, I can tell you this side story about this person you've never met before, but let's go back to the main story. 
At least that's how I tell stories. I can't confirm that's how she tells stories. <laughs> so a funny thing, though, back to this little investigation of her maybe crime. Whenever she is receiving papers about the taxes, she goes, perhaps he considers himself the sheriff. So it doesn't seem like she has any regards for the law as it is. You're right. She just is like, yeah, you know, whatever. This is my town. I'm the sheriff. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. I'm the sheriff now. <laughs> so, yes, to her motive for possibly killing Homer, Baron, I want to say that it's because he didn't reciprocate her feelings. He liked men, and that's fine, obviously, but she did not believe that. And so she was like, arsenic, here you go. And it made it to where he stayed with her for the end of her life. Because it does seem like she was trying to possibly get him to marry her with courting him. And then also she went to the store and bought him a ring with his initials on there. And she bought him clothes. And it seems like she was trying to set up a life for him. But he didn't reciprocate those feelings. Well, what's interesting is I believe she bought the poison before she bought the uh, ring and bathroom set and things. See, with the non-linear aspect of the story, I don't know if we can believe that as much. You're definitely right. I don't know if we can either. Um, we're given the time frame that before the cousins leave town, she buys the things for Baron with his initials on them. So we know it's for Baron is why we're saying that. And then after the cousins leave town, Baron is seen entering the back door of her house. I mean, and then the poor guy is never seen again. That's not necessarily true. He is seen again. Oh, uh, you're right. <laughs> I would rather not remember that scene. Never seen again in the flesh. Well, nah, he's probably bones by then. No, it says flesh. His fleshy grin stretched over. So now we are referring to, of course, section five of the story, the end, where they come in and they see the man himself lay in the bed. And they never specifically name it as Homer. So I could argue with John that it could be the father and that she killed Homer, but... We kind of talked about it beforehand, and that doesn't fit in line with the story. Well, because the Undertaker came to her house and forcibly removed the body of her father from the house. After her father died, it was like three days, and she really didn't want to give up the body of her father, but all the people in town were like, no, Emily, you have to do this. So I don't know if she planned to do this again for the first time with her father, and since she was unable to keep her father's body, she had the opportunity to kill Mr. Baron, and was like, yes, I will keep this body. It is just as good as the first one. I think that's an interesting theory. I really perked up at that one. I like that theory that she wanted to have a companion with her, at least to the end of her life. So she's like, well, I have to get another one. So it kind of sucks that she can't confide in her housekeeper because he is a black man. It really sucks. And it's a product of its time that she would only go after a white man to be her companion when she had someone, a real alive person with her that whole time. I think there's a fair amount of racial themes in this story because there's a lot of underlying racism, and I mean a lot, just of the old people in the town. The Colonel Sotoros who remitted her taxes is the one that passed a law saying that no Negro shall appear in public without an apron on. No, that definitely is a racist law, and there are some racist undertones of the story. And later on, another older person is talking about where the smell might have been coming from and says that the N-word, referring to Tobe, the housekeeper, might have killed something in the yard. So just... There is a lot of racist undertones in this story. I actually had downloaded a PDF version that I got free online, because a lot of these short stories you can get free online, and mine actually did not have the N-word in it. It just said that man of hers killed in the yard. So it's interesting to show how they're, you know, people nowadays are trying to 
remediate the sins of the past and not use terms that we should not have been using to begin with. I think that's definitely true. And relating this to a separate piece of work, there was a play I recently read for a class, A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry, in which one version, the earlier version, um, used a homophobic slur, and the newer version that I watched on YouTube omitted that word, which I think is interesting. Just another example of this. I think it shows some evolution as humans that we have learned and adapted and that we are trying to do better. Although not everyone is, but we won't get into the politics today. (laughs) But I do think that Faulkner tried to write what was true in his time. Not just for Emily, but for everyone in the story. I agree. I think William Faulkner wrote these racist things as a form of history, almost. He really wrote what was happening and what he experienced and saw happening. He was born in the South, specifically Mississippi. He would have been alive post-Civil War with some Jim Crow things coming about and a lot of the racist policies taking place. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up because in the story, towards the end, at Miss Emily's funeral, there are men in Confederate soldier uniforms at the funeral, the older gentlemen that are attending the funeral. Contemporaries, or Faulkner actually explicitly states they are not contemporaries, but just people that are in the same age group because Miss Emily was a loner. So these people that are in the same age group of Miss Emily are wearing Confederate soldier uniforms at her funeral. So I think it is safe to assume that she would have been around pre-Civil War times and she would have seen slavery and that, you know, a lot of these racist things still would have been around. Which is interesting because at her funeral, Tobe, the housekeeper, lets in the first guest that arrive after she dies and then walks out the back door and never comes back. Which, my first reading, I thought, like, oh, he's escaping. But I think it was a little later than, like, slavery being a thing still. But it's just interesting to me. I still would argue that he is escaping. And I think he's escaping from them realizing the truth. So a lot of this can relate back to Southern Gothic literature. Specifically with how it's just kind of the whole society is kind of breaking down and changing. That's kind of what Southern Gothic shows. It just shows the decaying nature of things that kind of stems from a different place. So it can stem from the society changing. It can stem from alienation as Miss Emily was alone for so long. And that kind of shows why she did the grotesque and disturbing things she did was because she was alone. So yeah, even though Faulkner didn't like to be seen as a symbol, a lot of his stuff is a pretty symbolic. Yeah, my man's just was not for it. (laughs) We kind of got a little bit off topic there, kind of following that nonlinear storytelling of the story itself. So back to our original point, her loneliness. She did not want to be lonely, so she kept Homer's dead body in the attic. Not only did she keep the dead body in the attic, she slept next to it. Although that's never explicitly said, it just shows that On the second pillow next to him, there was an indentation of a head and a long strand of iron gray hair. And earlier in the story, Faulkner did a really good job of, like, describing how she, like, aged and how her hair appeared now. Just really show that last tie-in at the end. Yeah, she did not have gray hair when she killed the guy. That happened later. Several years after the fact. So at least years she was sleeping with a dead body. And I just think that's really what like gets you at the end. And that's the ooky spooky nature of the story. I remember the first time we read this, I literally had chills and like shivers. I was like so creeped out by it. It just makes you feel icky all over. So icky. Like you like want to take a shower after you heard it. Like when you hear about it, you see a spider or something. 
And I think it just goes to show that since Faulkner used such good descriptions throughout the story, it hits you really hard at the end when it said the long strand of iron gray hair and you knew exactly what he was talking about or whose he was talking about. So this big reveal at the end is kind of set up in section five with the housekeeper letting in the guests and walking out the back door. It kind of just sets the tone of, oh, something's not right. Something is terribly wrong here. All you have up to this point is this guy died and she bought poison. Like, that's it. That's your only hint to something bad happened. And then he walks out the back door. You're like, oh, no, they're going to find something. Like, something is still to be discovered. We don't have the whole story and we're going to get it. So Toe walking out the back door is a really good symbol of, hey, this is not right. Something's going to go bad. No, for sure, and I never actually really thought about it that way. I just kind of saw it as Tobe escaping, but not that he is trying to get away or show the reader that there is something to get away from. Well, that's about all the points I have, Hannah. I think so, too. I think this is a good closeout for our Ooky Spooky month. Yes, this is our last October episode, and we really want to end off on something creepy, and I would definitely recommend this story if you haven't read it yet. Well, if you have any other thoughts or different takes on the story, be sure to reach out to us and let us know. And thanks so much for listening. Bye. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com slash analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us, subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well. 